Joining me today, Mark Jarvis, CEO and Chairman of Giga Metals, and Lyle Tritton, Manager of Development for Giga Metals. Uh, it's Mark. It's nice to see you again, and, and Lyle, it's nice to meet you. How are you guys here today? Doing well today, Matt. Thanks. So they're here representing Giga Metals. Giga Metals, it's uh, September 22nd here. Big news out today. Giga Metals has published their PFS, and who doesn't live a good economic study? So I thought I'd get these two guys on here just to chew on it with me a little bit. Uh, before we get going, though, as always, standard disclaimers, right? This is not investment advice. Information here is entertainment, entertainment purposes only, rather, and you have to make your own investment decisions. Full disclaimer in the YouTube notes. But Mark, why don't we just kind of start simply put, you've got a nice new slide deck out with some highlight numbers from the, from the PFS. Do you just want to do a quick slide deck presentation for us here to get us going? Yeah, and I think it'll only be part of our deck. I don't want to get into the whole nickel market. I assume your audience is here because they already know about the nickel market and they know about the EV market. So I just want to be specific to this project for for this part of the presentation. So I'll just get going if that's okay with you, Matt. And Absolutely. part of it will be me, part of it will be Lyle. There's, there's, there's certain parts that I want. You know, Lyle is our in-house engineer who... Um, worked very closely. He was our point of contact for all of the various engineers, geologists, and metallurgists that worked on this PFS. And it's been a lot of work. Lyle has been in the middle of all of it. So he's the guy that knows all the details here. So just, just so you know, I'm the guy that understands things from about 20,000 feet, as they say. So I'll just get going. I've, 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 I've always been a fan of this picture because it does a really good job of showing, you know, there's the camp, there's the kilometer long airstrip, there's the Turnigan River, but it also shows the terrain. This is good country for open pit mining. And it's also easy country for road building. This is not challenging terrain by any stretch of the imagination. Um, so this shows that very well. Uh, you've made your disclaimer, here's our disclaimer. <laughs> So we formed a joint venture with Mitsubishi Corp, and it's with Mitsubishi's money that we've actually done this pre-feasibility study. They were very interested in the project because uh, low carbon, um, and also, uh, you know, they like the jurisdiction, um, but they also like, you know, they looked at our PEA, which you'll recall, Matt, uh, had a negative depreciated net present value on it which everybody was shocked when we released that. Like, why don't you, you know, why don't you jigger it a little bit? And we don't do that. So we just, you know, we just put it out. We tell it like it is. And this PFS is much along the same lines. Um, it's not designed to get, you know, Bay Street and Wall Street, you know, analysts excited. Um, it is designed to describe accurately uh, our project to potential strategic investors. That's the market that we are focused on right now. So, uh, you know, and that's why we've done things the way we've uh, done them. Um, I'll just move on here. So here's some of the uh, project highlights. Um, the uh, capital cost, 1.9 billion is similar to the full capital cost of the PEA. And it's uh, interesting because, you know, there has been inflation, uh, you know, in, in the intervening. However, the engineers uh, 
this is this is this is a capital cost with a higher degree of certainty because the engineers actually went out and got quotes on all the major equipment and and have done detailed you know much more detailed design work than in the PEA and uh, this is a good number and this is a credible number um, now instead of building it in two stages five years apart as we did in the PEA it's basically we're going to build the first stage and then immediately start building the second phase so within the first year we'll start building on the second phase um, and the reason for that is that uh, the initial capital cost went up and the capital cost of double production went down so we weren't going to be um, risking that much less capital to actually go full steam ahead here so uh, that's why we changed that approach. Very large mine, you know, uh, roughly 35,000 tons a year of nickel and about uh, 2,000 tons a year of cobalt uh, in a typical year. And just for perspective, for a large Indonesian HPAL project, uh, you know, that'll get to 35,000 tons a year of nickel, uh, the capital cost is typically around $3 billion US. So, you know, 1.9 billion is a very large number, but in the scheme of things and in comparison with the competition, it's actually quite affordable, if I can, if I can put it that way. A 30-year project life, a beautiful high-grade concentrate, a site operating cost of uh, $3.85 a pound nickel uh, in concentrate at the mine gate. That is before byproduct credits. It's also before shipping charges. Uh, so if you Hold in byproduct credits, shipping charges, and smelter charges, you get the C1 cost, which is US 465 a pound nickel. So that's 465 per payable pound. And the smelter's paying us 78% uh, of the nickel content and 50% of the cobalt content. And again, the reason we went that route uh, to the smelter route is that uh, it's a market that exists. It's existed for 100 years. Um, smelters have been buying uh, concentrates uh, like ours, and in fact, most of the concentrates they buy this th these years are much lower quality than our concentrates. But they've been buying and successfully processing for you know for a hundred years. So we're focused on a market that actually exists. Uh, we do think the future will be for material like ours to go through a pressure oxidation. Uh, refinery but there's not that many of those around so we're not going to model that uh, in an engineering report at this point we do believe the future is there though but people have got to start building refineries and so for these technical highlights i'd, I'd like to pass it over to lyle to uh, comment sure thanks mark you know when when i think about this project and i come from an operational background is i want to build something that i know it and I know it will work, and I know what it will do. As an operator, you want you want to know every day that it's going to do what you want it to do. Um, so the fact that we have a very simple flow sheet, once through, crush, grind, standard frost flotation, much like a, a big copper porphyry project, except even simpler because we have one recovery mode, uh, frost flotation of the nickel concentrate. We don't have to worry about a second con, like a molly concentrate or doing an acid heat leach and stuff on the side. It's just a very straightforward flow sheet to recover the nickel. Cobalt comes with it. A little bit of the PGEs come with it. There's nothing fancy being done there. Standard technology. 
you know, one of the big questions we had coming into this program was we've done a lot of work over many, many years, decades on the whole recovery program. We've seen a wide range of results. And the question always is, well, you know, maybe that's just your best stuff. What about other stuff? How will it all work? And does it all behave the same? Do you understand how the whole deposit will behave? So we set out to do a, a big geometallurgical program, work with some uh, experts in the area to pick 70 samples from around the deposit, all spatially, all over the place, different rock types, different grades, all the way from high-grade ore down to what we know will be waste material, and put it all through the same standard process flow sheet to see what would happen. And we were very surprised with the outcome uh, and very pleased with the outcome because what we were able to do was show that every sample is described by the same recovery algorithm. The, the host rock type doesn't matter. Where it is in the deposit doesn't matter. We know, need to know a couple of points of, about the rock, and that's it. We can predict the recovery with a very high-precision algorithm, much better than is typical for low-grade nickel projects. So, you know, that's a really great outcome that allows us, you know, when you go to operate the project, you know what you're going to put in the mill tomorrow because you've done your definition drilling and you know what it'll come out the other end. From a mining point of view, you know, it's a big mine, 90,000 tons a day of ore, but it's a very low strip ratio. Life of mine is 0.4. It was a little bit lower in the PEA, 0.2, um, and it's changed, it's gone up, doubled to what is already, you know, what is still one of the record low numbers because of two factors. In a PEA, you're allowed to include inferred resources in your overall project plan, and in a PFS, you're not. So those inferred resources are now waste on paper. In reality, when you dig it up, if it's of ore grade, you'll process it. And we've been more selective about more marginal materials. Our recovery algorithm is giving us better precision at the low end to better define what's ore and what's waste. And that means that some of the materials that were considered marginal ore before, we're now considering to be waste. But again, those decisions change every day in an operating mine based on price points. Nickel goes to 20 bucks. Most of that waste is not waste anymore, right? Um, that concentrate that we produce, as Mark said, is a great con. Uh, typical in our industry is 10 to 12% nickel. You end up bringing a lot of lower grade materials with it, like pyrotite, because that contains a part of your nickel. And to get high recoveries, you end up with low grades. Because we've got 99% of our nickel, recoverable nickel, is in nickel sulfide minerals, pentlandite primarily, and a little bit of, of other minerals. Um, that's what we want to recover, and we can reject the pyrotite. So if you're in a Sudbury camp type environment, you typically have a bunch of that in your concentrate, dilutes you to 10%. We don't have it in ours. That allows us to really tailor the operation. Overall, uh, the operation is a very low carbon throughput. Uh, the GHG profile is very low. It was very low in the PEA at 2.24 tons of CO2 per ton of nickel and concentrate. We've dropped that to less than 1.8 now through some selections in our mining equipment and our approach uh, to bring that down a little bit further. We're using more electricity and less diesel. And in BC, I think that's a fantastic story. Not included in that is the fact that our tailings, the host rock in the, that hosts all our nickel sulfide, are actually reactive with CO2 from the air and will sequester CO2 in the tailings when, when it's exposed to air. 
we haven't accounted for that. The, the, you know, you can't know ahead of time exactly how much it will be, but it will be an appreciable amount. And at the end of the day, that's a good thing for the world. Okay. So uh, here's the economics. Um, and there's one surprising result in here. So just for context, a couple of things uh, we chose as a long-term price, uh, $9.75 um, nickel. And just for context, that is 19% below the 20-year average nickel price in 2023 dollars. Um, and I'll be showing you sort of a high and a low case of sensitivity analysis in the next slide. But, but, but even our high case in the sensitivity analysis is still below the average nickel price for the last 20 years. So, you know, it's uh, we think that's a pretty conservative price. Um, one thing that uh, people might question is that we're using a discount rate of 7% rather than 8%, which is typical. Why are we doing that? You know, um, the reason we're doing that is that we've got Mitsubishi for a partner. And if this mine gets built, the cost of capital will actually be well below 7%. I think they can get things built, you know, with, you know, at a two or 3% interest rate. So, so this discount rate um, when you look at who we're in business with is actually on the high side. Um, you know, you could make an argument that it should be lower under the circumstances. Um, and then people look at uh, the surprising results here is you've got a pre-tax internal rate of return of 11.1% and a post-tax internal rate of return of 11.4%. That result uh, we found quite surprising uh, when uh, price Waterhouse Coopers came back with the tax analysis to us. And allow, you, you can probably do a better job of explaining why this arises than I can. Yeah, it, it's really an outcome of the new clean technology manufacturing tax credit that the federal government has brought in. Um, this is in order to remain competitive with other jurisdictions like the U.S. with the Investment Recovery Act and some of the stuff they're doing in Europe to encourage domestic manufacturing and build those critical minerals supply chains. And so the, the CTM tax credit, regulations aren't fully published yet, so everybody's guessing a little bit, but we've worked with our accountants on this, and it's a refundable tax credit. So in actual fact, we get a portion of the capital cost back from the government as tax credits at the start of production not 10 years down the road when we're, we're making good profits and paid off all our capital costs. And that bumps your, your post-tax numbers up, which is great. Um, we love that. And, you know, our government, every government in the West is very concerned about these supply chains and is very concerned about making sure that we're able to be competitive with projects in the West. So they've taken the steps to do that, and you can see the results here. And also for a bit of context for the viewers, you know, um, if you've got a really large base metals project, uh, you know, something with a 30-year mine life and with with potential upside far beyond that, which, which this one does have, um, you know, the hurdle rate is really uh, an internal rate of return post-tax of about 10%. It's not a 20% or 30% fertile rate to get the project built. So, so we have exceeded that. And again, with, with a nickel price that we think is quite conservative, 
considering what's going on in the electric vehicle market. I know that the nickel price the last week or so has been uh, off. Uh, there's a lot of concern about what's going on in China, uh, but that's, you know, nickel does that. It goes up and down in quite a volatile way. Long-term, it needs to trade at higher prices to incentivize, you know, all of the large low-grade deposits and the HPL deposits. Um, they need higher nickel prices to, to deliver robust economics. So there's a little background of that. Um, and here's the sensitivity analysis uh, I was talking about. And you can see how, um, if you look at the depreciated net present value, uh, if you take the price to $11.22, which is again, still below the 20 year average price of nickel, now you're getting into a post-tax NPV of more than a billion dollars US. So this is getting uh, uh, very robust. And you look at these numbers and, you know, on the base case, on the base case, uh, post-tax NPV at 574 million US dollars. My God, you know, look at our market cap. And uh, our market cap looks like the post-tax depreciated net present value uh, if you assume the low case, 15% below the base case, that's 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 what our that's what our market capitalization looks like. And uh, so basically, if you think we're worth what we're trading at right now, then then you believe that the long-term price of nickel is much lower than we believe it is. Uh, so here's uh, here's where we're located. It's a good jurisdiction. Lots of mining in this jurisdiction. Lots of big open pit mines. And uh, uh, that dotted purple line shows where, uh, well, well, the solid purple line, first of all, is where the uh, BC Hydro line is built today to the village of Iskut. And, uh, and we're gonna need to take it up to Dees Lake and over to our project. So, um, you know, basically, and then, and then the highways there, we're also gonna need to uh, build out the road in to turn again, it's a very primitive road at this point. So, so part of our capital costs are to improve that road to make it suitable uh, to support a mining operation. We are in a territory that is claimed as traditional territory by both the Taltan and the Capscadena. Um, and you know, their 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 claims overlap at our project. Um, and I think there's pretty wide agreement. Uh, Amongst both the Taltan and the Casca, that you know, there it's going to be a 50-50 deal. Uh, both of them are generally supportive of responsible mining development. Um, they're doing quite well out of the mining business right now, and and they continue to do better. Lots and lots of good jobs. The mineral resource statement. Um, you can see that we've got. <laughs> in measured plus indicated, which is all we used in the uh, in the PFS. We've got a total of 7.4 billion tons of nickel. And then in the inferred category, another 5 billion tons. And something new here uh, in this PFS, we now have reserves. Reserves are different than resources. Uh, proven reserves are, if you take measured resources, and, and apply an economic analysis to them and with a positive outcome, then they become reserves. A probable 
reserves are the indicated resources that have gone through that same process. So in total, we've got 950 million tons of reserves with uh, 4.3 billion uh, pounds of nickel contained. So it's really a giant a project. Now I talked about upside. Uh, if you look at the uh, horse trail zone, horse, horse trail in Northwest, that's where we're gonna be mining. And you can see the density of the drilling in there. Um, so that's where the that's where the reserves are. We didn't uh, a model mining the Hatsel zone. Um, we could have, but at this point we're not going to. Uh, you know, we think the Hatsel zone needs more drilling, more definition. Uh, but there's some pretty good grades in the Hatsel zone. The Cliff zone, we've got a few holes in historically. It's interesting because it's got nickel and cobalt, but it's also quite high in platinum and palladium. And, uh, and it's got some copper grade going in there as well. So it's a bit different. Um, now up in the highland, the central, the mandible, we've got holes that are, you know, as much as three, four kilometers away from our resource. And those holes are kind of similar to what's in the deposit. So we've just never had the budget to really chase all these other targets. But we think over time, you know, there's 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 a possibility, I would say a strong possibility, that you're gonna develop more resources. You can't prove it until you do the drilling, but but you know, any geologist that looks at this goes, yeah, th these are targets that should be drilled. There's there's a real case to be made that you could expand it. And so you know, we think once you get this project off the ground, the mine life will ultimately, you know, it'll start at 30 years, but it will grow from there. And Lyle, if you could talk about uh, the flow sheet here. Certainly, Mark. Thank you. Um, so I've introduced this flow sheet a little bit already. What are, a few things I'd like to point out here is, you know, we've got the primary crusher right next to the mine. Shorten the hull distance. You always want to do that. Uh, but then we're taking the ore after the primary crusher across the river and up the hill to where our processing mill is. And, and we're doing this using a, a big overland conveyor to put it into a crushed ore stockpile. And I really like this because as a metallurgical engineer, I've seen a lot of pipes hole out over the years. And when you put a hole in a, in a pipe that's got high pressure slurry in it, you tend to get high pressure slurry everywhere. And it gets to be really hard to clean up. And you don't really want to do that into a river and a water course. So the fact that we're conveying it in a covered structure, spills of rock are much easier to clean up than spills of slurry if you ever have one. Um, and then from the, the crushed ore stockpile, we're into our main processing plant, which is a very straightforward approach. Very conventional cone crusher, secondary crushing circuit. Tertiary crushing, we've done something a little different for the Canadian-based metals industry. We're using high-pressure grinding rolls which are a very energy efficient way of getting that finer stage of, of crushing of the material. They're amazing devices. We put uh, about a ton and a half of material through a pilot unit at the University of British Columbia this spring. It was amazing to watch it work. Uh, it's unlike anything else I've ever seen in the minerals business. Comparatively speaking, quiet, dust-free, just sucks material through these two counter-rotating rolls and uh, crushes at the very fine material. So we went from you know about one inch size particles to about quarter inch size particles 
in 20 seconds, we could suck through 200 kilos. Uh, amazing device. It's very pleased to be using them because our ore is hard. And so that combination energy is important for us. Coming out of there, a couple of closed circuit ball mills to get down to our final product size of 85 microns. That's where we get the best recovery. I'd love to have an ore body like the copper porphyries that you can get away with grinding to 250 microns and recover it there. That'd be brilliant. That's not the turning in ore body. You need to do what's right for the ore body. Rougher flotation is a big circuit, and that's really important. That's our primary recovery. If we don't get it in the rougher flotation, it's going to tailing. So you really want to make sure that you push really hard in the roughers and pull off all the floatable nickel you can. And then you take it into the cleaners and you start scrubbing away all the stuff that isn't product. Uh, and that's the job of the cleaners and the cleaner scavengers that we have in the flow sheet. Once through that whole circuit, and the product comes out the other end of the thickener and filter and off to market. Tailings out of both the roughers and the cleaner scavengers are all impounded in our engineered tailings management facility, which is uh, a really interesting structure and design point because that's where we have our carbon sequestration aspects. And if I can comment as well, um, simplicity equals low risk, low technical risk. And in fact, I would venture to say that of the large undeveloped nickel projects of the world, uh, there's nothing out there that has a flow sheet this simple, and therefore there's nothing out there that has a technical risk this low. Um, so that's a real strength of the project. Um, this concentrate is a beautiful product. And so, um, you know, you know, partly we can we can sell it to a smelter easily, uh, and one of the attractions of our product to a smelter will be that, that that they can take our product, and then they can buy some cheaper, dirtier concentrates, and blend away the problems with the cheap stuff by mixing it with our stuff, and you know, making something that's suitable for their particular smelter. Uh, but again, uh, there are clear options that you could take this through a pressure oxidation circuit, you know, and take it sort of directly in the direction of the cathode. There's just not enough refineries built in the world right now, unless you want to ship to China. And, uh, you know, I think the governments and the car companies are pushing not to ship this product to China, uh, that this should be part of a North American or North American and European supply chain. And again, there's our there's our annual production model boat. It's a giant project. Uh, and we're getting into stuff that's off topic for our specific projects. So I'm gonna stop sharing right now and we'll start taking questions. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. No, thanks for that, Mark. I think that the just you know, new new PFS, everybody just wants to see the headline numbers as best they can. But yeah, I, you know, you, you touched on both of you a couple of topics that I hope that we can kind of fill the rest of our time with here today. You know, I, I think that people we people are going to want to discuss the headline numbers. Uh, people are going to want to, to discuss maybe under the hood, all those characteristics and aspects of the Turning In project that merit a closer look for investors. And and what I find interesting here is, is and I'll, I'll touch on this later, is trying to change my perspective, look at things from the perspective of a major versus just a, a, a private investor, right? And there are different characteristics, different aspects, different, you know, a different checklist at play there. But maybe before we get into all that, uh, 
you know, cost improvements, right? Like I think you referenced it. I mean, we, we've seen some serious inflation. This has always been a risk in the last few years, you know, chronic risk always, but especially in the last few years that economic studies are out of date very shortly when it comes to that pricing. I've just, just I just crunched numbers. I looked, I looked at your PA this morning and just, so, I mean, I might, my numbers might be a little off, right? My napkin math might not be perfect, but your CapEx, as you referenced, Mark, stays roughly the same, but your sustaining capital, you're actually some significant savings. So that when you go to get the total capital expenditures, uh, there's 377 million US dollars cheaper now than there was on the PA from, from, from a few years back there. So that's 9.6%. Can one of you gentlemen, I'm not sure, maybe this is a Lyle question, but uh, how did that come to pass, right? Do you mind just touching on that a bit? Sure. And so there's two things that I want to stress here. Um, Typically, when you move from PEA to PFS, you see costs rise. And there's an old maxim in the industry that a project never looks better than it does at the PEA. We deliberately set out with the PEA to do a conservative project. And that's what got us Mitsubishi. That's what got us numbers that the retail crowd didn't like. It's okay. Um, we we did what we wanted with that. You'll see that the headline capital number for the construction capital is basically the same now as it was three years ago when we did the PEA. And you know some of the elements have gone up in cost. The, the you know when you look at the direct costs for the process plant, they're up a little bit. For the mining, they're up a little bit. For the offsite infrastructure, they're actually down a little bit because we're doing a better job of estimating. Whenever you go to the to the next stage of detail, you're getting a lot more engineering information to build your estimates off. Of. And so the last time, you know, these were really just broad factored estimates. Oh, we need a 78 kilometer road. It's going to be yeah, about this much a kilometer. Well, now we've actually gone through and calculated cut and fill quantities and how much work needs to be done and looked at all the crossings and come up with a lower number. Same thing for the power line. We've come up with a lower cost. So some of those have helped offset rises in some of the other uh, equipment packages. The big change, as you referenced, is in sustaining capital. And that's really, it's a two-part answer there. The biggest part of that is simply, it's a shorter mine life. It's 30 years instead of 37 years. So you don't need as much mining equipment. You're not putting as much tailings in the tailings bond. On a per ton of ore basis, the total capital cost for mining and tailings management is about the same as it was three years ago. So why is there no inflation in there? Because we built it conservatively in the first place. People were surprised. And when we've gone back and done the details and dug in really hard on the work, these are the real numbers and, and we're quite happy with it. We brought the contingency values down as the direct costs have risen because you're able to do that when you have that higher level of definition. And the engineers, you know, they've got quotes for all the major pieces of equipment. They've done detailed builds of materials for all the installation requirements, all the piping, all the wiring, all the instrumentation, all of that is no longer factored off. You know, the pump's $100,000, so it'll cost us uh, $350,000 all in. It's now done on a much higher level of detail, which allows you to bring the contingency down. The indirect costs, which are you know all those bits of cost that you incur that don't end up in the final plant, engineering, procurement, craneage, uh, temporary facilities for workers, all these kinds of things, that cost has actually stayed the same from PEA to PFS, about $375 million, right? And, and we think that for a remote project, that's probably pretty real, right? Can we get it down a bit? Yeah perhaps, but you don't want to try and say it's going to be $100 million because there's just no way to build a project in northern BC 
that remote that's going to have that kind of indirect cost. It just it it doesn't work. You know, without naming names, I have seen engineering reports out there for similar size projects where the sustaining capital life of mine is fifty million dollars. Nobody believes that. Nobody in the industry, nobody that's ever run a mine, nobody that's ever run maintenance in a mine believes that. But these are the games you can play with these kind of engineering reports. And we're not playing any of those games. Basically, we're looking to the strategic market and saying, A, do you believe our geological model? B, do you believe our metallurgical recovery algorithm? Do you believe our CapEx? Do you believe our OpEx? Do you believe our sustaining capital? Those are the things that, that we have laid out in great detail. They can do all the due diligence they want on them, and they're going to plug in their own assumptions about nickel prices, payabilities, so forth. They've, they've got their assumptions about that. They don't care what we think about those issues. They just care about, have you nailed what this thing's really going to cost? And yeah, and, I think and so, Mark. I, I guess the one thing that I always do when I'm looking at you know, sort of comparator projects, and it doesn't matter the the mineral you're dealing with, the cost of mining is the cost of mining. And so, if you're going to run a mine that's fifty thousand or a hundred thousand or a hundred and fifty thousand tons a day, you need a lot of mining equipment. And what's key is what's that? What do you think the total sustaining capital is per ton of total material that you're mining, or plus waste? That should be relatively the same from project to project. So if you look at our numbers and you think they're high because you're comparing them to something else that's a lot lower, well, you know, maybe that lower number is the right number. Fine. Use it. If you think so, use it for us. If you think our number is more realistic, apply it to other projects. But the cost is the cost. Nobody has any any magic that says that our mine trucks will last three times as long as somebody else's. Like, that's not how the industry works. Yeah, and also those gigantic tires on those trucks will last three times longer. Yeah. No, they won't, and and they're expensive. No, and I, you know, I, Mark and I, you, you know, you and I have chatted a few times at this point, Mark, and I, I appreciate always your frankness with this, right? That I think that uh, that your that kind of that that brutal honesty that you're coming to your own project with, I find so interesting. This is what I referenced earlier: is that it almost creates this oppositional approach between retail who look at IRR and NPV and payback and, and might balk at what they see here. But then that's what I always find so fascinating is that like, yeah, you've got Mitsubishi, you have a major, you have that the ultimate rumor that every nickel mine, nickel junior wants is this big fancy automaker to, to strap their name to it. And you've got that. And so it always gives me pause, right? That what, how am I, how should I be approaching this project? Am I approaching it incorrectly in terms of an actual value judgment. Um, I just wanted to keep going here, though. In terms of just changes from PA to PFS, you, 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 sorry. Before we move on, uh, there's one thing I want to clarify is, um, you know, and a lot of people make this assumption that we're dealing with Mitsubishi, the car company. Mm. Uh, We're not. Uh, uh, Mitsubishi is is a huge conglomerate, and there is a car company within that. But we're dealing with, uh, well, in in the larger sense, we're dealing with the trading arm, with the commodities trading arm of Mitsubishi, which is the largest largest commodities trader in uh, Japan, which has some other very large commodities traders. And then within the commodities trading arm, we're dealing with the raw materials division. And then within that division, we're dealing with the battery materials 
uh, division or subdivision or whatever it is. But 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 we are a long ways away from a car company. Our material may or may not end up uh, being sold to Mitsubishi Motors. Um, frankly, it probably won't unless it's to a to a plant in North America. It'll likely go to uh, other automakers. So that's an important point to make because when we're talking to automakers, they don't want their competition in the same deal. So anyway, no, so, 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 so sorry about that. I interrupted you, but go ahead. No, no, thank I will clarify and remove the auto comment. Yeah, precisely. It's still a huge yeah. no, multinational corporation it provides a, a shot of legitimacy that Nicola Jr.'s wish they had all the time, right? Um, mm -hmm. Just questions again around the PA to PFS changes. Uh, Lyle, maybe just say briefly here, it, it, it is there is a reduced mine life from 37 to 30 years. Uh, my question I had prior to you talking, and maybe it sounds like maybe I'm a little off here, is that simply a, re a removal of the inferred from the mine plan or what? how does that come about? Yeah, it's, it's two aspects. Part of it is the removal of the inferred. You're not allowed to incorporate them at the PFS level. So we have 53 million tons of inferred in the mine plan that are going to waste right now on paper. Of course, in practice, if they're ore grade, you'll feed them into the mill, not stick them on the waste pile. Um, the balance of it is that our as we've tightened up our recovery algorithm, uh, we're being a little bit more selective about ore versus waste and low value, what we thought were marginal low value materials for late in mine life production are now being slated for the waste pile. They might be economic depending on the the price of time. Uh, but you know, under under the paradigm that we built the model under, they're they're slated for waste. Um, ultimately most of our waste material is mineralized material. It's just whether it's got enough grade to make it worth putting through the mill or not. Uh, and that's a decision of the day when you're mining it. Do you, do you put it through? Do you put it in low grade stockpile, or you put it in the waste if it's a low grade item? No, thank you. So yeah, again, just always with this, I, I I'm looking at the PFS. I mean, the the full PFS isn't yet released, right? The, just the highlight package here. You have changed. You you and you folks reference it, and again, I like I just appreciate that sort of upfront approach. You change the discount rate from eight percent, which is standard for base metal, to seven percent. Um, and so I, I I worked backwards with some napkin math based on PA sensitivity charts. There are still significant improvements on the on the valuation, even at an eight percent discount. You know, but and I can even understand you know what your your expression of reduced risk. Transition PA to PFS, Mitsubishi on board. I do buy that, right? Like, I, I understand that that is a reduced risk that could merit or warrant a, a reduction in the discount rate. But you know, people might still raise raise an eyebrow, I suppose, right? That it just it challenges the ability to do that sort of one to one comparison, just like I found, right? From PA to PFS. Do you guys just want to discuss, gentlemen? Do you want to discuss uh, who had input into that change? You know, I guess maybe was Mitsubishi involved in that discussion at all? You know, and then you know, is this an external? Was you know, was Tetra Tech involved with that? And how did you come to to justify or, or understand that the discount rate reduction was was warranted? I'll I'll, I'll let Lyle answer most of that. I just my com my one comment up front is that the discount rate that you use to analyze a project is related to your expected cost of capital. Okay, and so if you're taking on debt capital from a Mitsubishi bank, well, we actually expect it will be at two or three percent. 
And so 7% is high in relation to that. And, and, and your cost of capital is related to your jurisdiction as well. If you're in a, in a dangerous country, the bankers are going to charge you more because there's more risk. So, you know, we thought it was a reasonable move, but over to Locke. Yeah, thanks, Mark. And, you know, I, as a professional engineer, I, I resent the approach of there's a standard number you should use. I think it's complete BS. And if anybody can explain to me why the risk factors in a gold project are so much different that they get to use 5% and a base metals has to use 8% when all the risk is in the, the mine and the geology and the processing, I'd be pleased to entertain that argument. Um, as it comes to the selection, ultimately, uh, it's Tetratech because they're signing off on it. Uh, they are the QPs for the project. We have input. Mitsubishi has input. Everything that we've done has been in lockstep with Mitsubishi and their due diligence consultants that they've had on board the, from before they invested all the way through the pre-feasibility study. And we've met with them every month and they've provided a lot of input and review of all of the elements as we go along. You know, I think 7% in Canada with, with Mitsubishi as a partner is a very realistic number. Uh, I wouldn't say 7% for a project in the DRC was a reasonable number, right? But, you know, if you're in the base metals game, you use a single number, it's complete BS. Um, ultimately, again, we're playing to the strategic audience. They're going to use their own numbers anyway. Right? It's going to be about their cost of capital. Whether you're an OE, a car OEM or a big mining company or somebody else, you're going to use your own number. And we've been told by some uh, potential partners that we've talked to that, you know, we see what you're doing. We're going to evaluate it at this number. Sure. Absolutely. Do what you want. It's You're doing it for your investment. You're entitled to use whatever numbers you want to use. So. As long as you have... Well, well, please don't pull your punches. <laughs> Tell me how you really feel, eh? Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, you, you articulated that prior to this too, right? That so long as those concrete numbers, your capital inputs are are are, are, the, are, are concrete and known, as you say, I mean, the, 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 your potential partners will, will play with the numbers themselves based on those. So yeah. we are getting to, right, these, these headline numbers that we'll get to, IRR, 11.4, et cetera. Uh, but you know, we will get to those. But... That's confusing me. I do want to talk about uh, your project economics and your numbers, right? I mean, we, we see that you have these numbers that maybe what the retail investor looks like, it's something that you're going to pass by, right? And it's something that I would want you guys to confront head on here as well, right? That your actual, you know, the payback period, you know, several, uh, two or three times more than what you would maybe expect around that three or four year mark, right? IRR is 11%, as Mark said, that, that the hurdle to that is 10%. Uh, you know, these numbers are, they, it is economic, but maybe not the numbers that people come to expect from a project. Um, and so for me, again, this is where, like, I know Mark has a history of success, and I, I find that you guys, I trust your numbers, and I trust the way that you guys do your business. And so it makes me, and, and of course, Mitsubishi is this huge de-risking moment for me. And I kind of said off the top that I it makes me recalibrate how I approach these numbers, right? So I guess, Mark, you know, maybe I'll let you head this off, but I mean, Lyle, obviously I'll let you guys kind of make, take your pick, but if we're going to discuss this, do you, uh, this warrants a conversation, right? This is a massive, massive mine. Um, why are these numbers, even on, if, if you expand beyond economics, what does, what does, what does Mitsubishi look for beyond those headline numbers? I guess maybe that's the question I'm trying to ask you after this kind of ramble is that, 
what are what is the what is the part of the picture that retail investors are missing that makes this compelling to to majors or to large companies? Okay, I'll I'll, I'll start off. I think um, so. For one thing, the requirements for a huge um, long life base metals mine are different than if you've got a high grade small gold mine with a seven year mine life. If you've got a little high grade gold mine with a seven year mine life, you better have an internal rate of return of like 50% because you're going to have, you know, your models, you don't have enough time in that mine life. You know, it's going to take two or three years before you really have, 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 have shaken it down and you're really operating efficiently. And then by the time you get there, the mine life is almost over. So, so you need a really high IRR for that type of mine. Um, I think what Mitsubishi looks like, actually, I'm not going to speak for them. I, I, you know, I think a lot of the larger companies and the majors, they look at the nickel market and they go, okay, I want a long mine life um, because historically, nickel has been extremely volatile. Every 20 years or so, it spikes up to crazy prices for two or three years and then comes back to earth. And if you've got a really large mine in operation, then you're going to get two or three years of outrageous um, profits. I mean, I remember when Valley bought Inco. Um, I forget what they paid. It was a few billion dollars. They bought Inco. And then in the three years following that, nickel prices went crazy. And their entire purchase price and then some was paid back in that two or three year period. So I think that's part of it is that is that everybody knows that nickel's volatile. If you can get something built uh, with positive economics, you are set up for when prices go crazy. And to me, when I look at the long-term uh, price of nickel, I, I think we're on the edge of that. I think, you know, I mean, right now there's headwinds because China is imploding economically somewhat, but this whole electric vehicle and, and, and overall electrification story means there's not enough nickel, something's gonna give. And I think, you know, what everybody's looking at is that prices will go crazy in a volatile way for some period of time, sometime relatively soon. Yeah, I, Mark, I think you you nailed that one. You know, I've been in the nickel business a long time. I, you know, I started in it in 1993, went through the whole Russian depression when they destocked stainless steel from all their defunct factories. Um, and, you know, nobody in the nickel business makes much money in those years. You make your gravy in a couple of years, as Mark said, and those years are glorious years when you're a producer. You don't want to be starting your project up immediately after that. And that's happened a few times because, you know, the history of our of our industry is you get funding when the prices are, are at their peak, and then you build your project and you start it up when prices have cratered and then you struggle. And, you know, we all hope for a different future. You know, we can't put ourselves in Mitsubishi's head. They've invested for their reasons. But I, when I think about the other things that the Mineral Resources Group is invested in, it's things like Iron Ore Company of Canada, Escondida, Antamina. These are big, long-life projects that operate more like a utility than 
you know, a, a, than a, you know, a gold mine or something else might, where, you know, you're going to be making product at a rational cost for a very long time. And you make your money on that. And maybe you don't make, you don't have the home run, but you're making a good amount of money just about forever. And that's what matters to companies that are investing for the long term. So, you know, their track record of investing in long life projects stands on its own. That's what they've done. Well, I think that's, you know, I, like I say, it is, it is forced me to have a thought exercise as I've referenced a couple of times is to look at these things from the idea of, uh, uh, you know, a, a major MNC like Mitsubishi, right. That as you guys reference, right. That if you're going to create this vertical integration, your supply chains, what are the goals? Are you in the nickel production business looking for, you know, dollars per pound of profit or are you in the battery manufacturing business? Are you in that, that OEM sort of style thing that they're going for? Right. And so what do you want? You want consistent, you want predictable, you want simple, which I think, you know, you fellows articulated that so well, that, I mean, your, your actual flow sheet is, is, is very simple and that very narrow band of potential outcomes, right? It's jurisdictionally, it's low risk. And then, I mean, you, you also have one of the greenest and low, lowest carbon uh, pro nickel projects on the market or in the world, I think, right? So it does make sense to me that uh, major companies look at you as uh, a, a way that they can reduce a variable and then build an entire manufacturing process on that product coming out of it, right? So I guess maybe not to just carry water for you and pump your tires, because I think that all that makes sense, right? But then to turn this around, what's where's the positive outcome for a retail investor you know someone you know is listening to this and they buy it right they can see that the perspective of a of a major company such as Mitsubishi is different than you know Joe Blow down in 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 Canmore what is it that where is that positive outcome where is that positive investment outcome i guess where does that start to take shape for you guys and where does that start to take shape for us well i think i'll uh, i'll take a crack at that um you know right now um, it seems to me that the uh, market for junior mining companies is broken and, um, you know, it's right across the board. Um, and, you know, that's a whole topic of conversation that we don't need to get into right now. But, um, but in our case in particular, we're trading at about, you know, a $25 million market cap Canadian. Uh, we've got a project with a post-tax, you know, um, appreciated net present value of over 500 million U.S. There's a disconnect there, and and so how does that how does that value that's really there underlying all of this? How does that ultimately get expressed in the stock price so that people finally get to make some money? And I guess that's the real question. You know, when we did our um, transaction with Mitsubishi, uh, that transaction, when you look at the price that they paid, that implied a value of somewhere around 55 cents a share, something like 55 or 60 cents a share. And and the stock traded up to kind of the low 40s on volume for three days, and then it gradually declined again. But, you know, so there's a knowledgeable buyer getting what I thought was an incredible deal for Mitsubishi. I mean, it was a great deal for us because we got a great partner. Um, but but that did help, you know, lift the price somewhat. Um, the next tranche of financing isn't going to be as cheap as Mitsubishi paid, I can tell you that. And I know what my goals are. And so, 
perhaps when we do our next um, deal with a strategic, and I'm confident it's going to happen. I don't know the timing exactly, but 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 I know the level of interest that's out there right now, and it's you know for obvious reasons. Um, you know, if that transaction values a stock at a dollar a share or two dollars or three dollars a share, you know, which all those numbers are possible, um, the market's going to react to that, I believe. I don't know if it'll, in a good market, whatever the implied valuation is from the deal that we do, in a good market, the stock would trade higher than that. In an okay market, it would trade around there. In a bad market, it will trade below that. But it's going to react to that, I believe. And then ultimately, you know, um, will somebody want to buy this whole company? Um, that's possible too. I'm not saying it's going to happen. And if it happens, I don't know when, but it's certainly a possibility um, just to get their hands on this on this magnificent asset that we've got. Um, and that's, of course, the ultimate crystallization of where the shareholders get to make money and we all get to make money too. Yeah, no, and I, I think that that's, I think a lot of people are maybe a, in the boat that they they know Giga and they and they think it is this interesting project, but just the concern about that that positive investment outcome for shareholders. Because I think to me, if you ask me, you know, what's will Mits, will Mitsubishi will will turning and become a mine? I think absolutely right. I think that for me, uh, that that the the level of support that you have and the level of certainty that you've created, uh, it seems like it's clearly heading towards uh, a positive uh, construction choice decision and, and on to production. Right. Um, I mean, I'm just going to read a quote here. You know, from from oh, of course I'm going to butcher this because I'm from Saskatchewan, but uh, Kota Ikenishi, GM of the Battery Minerals Office from Mitsubishi, writes here that you have uh, we see a nickel. Pro so he says we are very pleased to see the positive PFS. We see a nickel project like Turn Again with low carbon intensity uh, in a stable jurisdiction has a key role to play in the future of the nickel industry, in particular for the battery industry. We look forward to Turn Again's potential to be further verified and works ahead. Um, maybe the question I'll have, and you folks are already touched on this, but I mean, how, what is the level of support, you know, going through the PFS process, how much was Mitsubishi involved? You know, how much, how much are their fingers in this pie, I guess, is the question. Um, they've been heavily involved and, you know, <laughs> when I left my private, my previous role, I, and came into the junior space with Mark, I thought I was done with some of the reporting aspects and stuff that I used to have to do in a big corporation. We've got a big corporation as a partner and they've asked for a lot of things from me, um, which is great. I love having them as a partner. Every month we're talking about this with their due diligence consultants who they've brought in because they admit that they're not a mining company themselves. Uh, and they've been helping steer the, the entire PFS all the way along through those consultants. You know, I'm dialoguing with them more than once a week. You know, it's basically a daily basis at this point. And they have people dedicated to this project. Um, I, I think they have, you know, internally more manpower on Turnigan than we do. Uh, because most of our work besides me is outsourced through engineers and engineering teams and, and others. Um, they've been heavily involved and and very usefully involved. 
Yeah, excellent. And again, I th- that just comes back to this idea that, you know, Mitsubishi did not choose you accidentally. Right? I'm sure that they were keenly aware of every nickel, potential nickel project that they could have partnered with, and they chose you. And I think that, again, I mean, it, it, this is, it speaks volumes to what you're offering that, again, maybe isn't obvious, uh, you know, that when you just look at those numbers. We're nearing the end here, gents. I mean, we only have a few minutes left, so maybe I might just kind of uh, t- turn us around to the end here. But, you know, I guess... What's next, right? So we have this positive PFS. I mean, last I looked at the, you, you were ticking up nicely, gently, kind of as news kind of was absorbed. But what's what can we look forward to, right? I mean, what's the next step uh, for you, for Giga, that, that you will see this story continue to grow and progress? Well, it is deal time. We've had a lot of strategics that have been waiting for this uh, pre-feasibility report. And I think we've delivered something uh, that is going to have a really good impact with that audience. Um, so, you know, just 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 to give us some context, to get this project from here to a final investment decision, all the geotechnical drilling and other work that needs to be done, we will do more metallurgy. We'll do more uh, geometallurgy, and we've got a, an entire environmental assessment to get through. It all costs money, and 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 with really large projects, it costs a lot of money. So, so at this point, it's a bit of an arm wave. But I'm I'm waving my arms, and I'm saying to get from where we are today, final investment decision, will be about 50 million U.S. dollars. And again, in a context where our entire market cap is 25 million Canadian, so, so another disconnect. But but we're looking to get that money by selling a part of our piece of the project, our 85%. Some of that is up for sale for that money to advance the project. That's a final investment decision. So that's what we're working on. Uh, Really, I don't want to launch into an environmental assessment until I know we're funded. I don't want to get part way into it and then stop. Just, it's It's just not the way to go. And, and I'd like to get the money soon. I'd like to get the money committed before the end of the year, if that's possible. That's pretty ambitious. You know, that, 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 that may be too ambitious a goal, but I'd really like to get the money in by February the latest uh, so that we can plan uh, our summer program and hire drilling contractors and all that sort of thing. So that's what's next is deal time. And, uh, you know, we're, we're going to be, running flat out talking about a lot of different Well, I can't help but ask as a follow-up, Mark, and obviously I don't expect you to divulge material information, but talks are in progress, I assume. I mean, can you provide any color or context on that in terms of number of parties or how advanced they are or, you know, that sort of conversations you've had around the PFS as is? Yeah, I don't want to get into too much detail about that, no. but there's a significant number of parties involved. They include major mining companies, they include major automobile manufacturers, and they include uh, battery companies. Um, so um, uh, some of them uh, are fairly advanced and they've got, you know, you know we've got uh, NDAs signed with them. So they can be in our electronic data room doing a deep dive into the data that's behind all of this engineering. Uh, some of them were waiting to see the PFS before they decide whether to sign an NDA with us and do a deep dive. Uh, so 
just, just, there's a lot going on. Of course. Now you can tell me to buzz off, but can I even ask how many NDAs you've got signed? Okay, no, fair enough. You can't fault me for asking, right? Um, uh, so one, you know, we are, like I say, nearing the end here. Uh, I, I just have to ask almost as just kind of sitting around the, the, the water cooler here. You know, the Japanese trade mission announcements yesterday, is there anything you want to talk about with those guys? Um, I didn't pay that much attention to it because we've just been so busy <laughs> the last couple of days. But uh, while did you notice anything there? Or? I, I see that there's been uh, a, some sort of a deal announced. Whether I always uh, cast a bit of a skeptical eye over announcements of supply chain deals because they're often uh, a little ephemeral in terms of time limited and like, if you deliver this by then we'll buy it. But, you know, is it actually feasible? You know, there's one of those signed with the U S project a couple of years ago. Sometimes these announcements are, are made because somebody needs to get an announcement out to look good. Is there, are they real or not? I haven't really spent any time looking at it. I still have a, a full PFS report to deliver. So, <laughs> I'm not done with the press release today, unfortunately. So, yeah, your feet aren't up on the kicking sand in Maui yet. No, so, yeah. not yet. <laughs> so, so, Matt, there's one uh, observation I'd like to end with, if that's okay. Yeah, of course. Uh, and 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 that is about Mitsubishi itself. They are thinking big. They are thinking about the entire battery supply chain in North America. Um, and so does that mean that they're going to build a refinery? No, but they know companies that they've got friendly relationships with that might build a refinery, right? And that might build a refinery that, that would process Turnigan concentrate. Are they going to make uh, PCAM and, you know, uh, and cathode active materials? Probably not. But again, they know companies that have that capability. And so I can tell you that that's what they're thinking because, and that's what, you know, Lyle is actually an expert in this topic as well. What do you need to get it from in the ground to the cathode? What are all the steps? We don't have them in North America and there's a lot of building to be done. You know, and I, I can just tell you, Mitsubishi's thinking big. Well, I think that that's a decent place to stop, Mark. I was going to ask you what your final thoughts were. I mean, honestly, I think that anybody out there who understands this future supply crunch as, as demand, uh, you know, hockey sticks vertical here for, for, for battery metals, anybody who believes that the green energy revolution is in play, I think that Giga Metals deserves demands your attention on that front. Uh, yeah, so Mark and Lyle, thank you guys for coming on my show here. I appreciate your time today. Thank you very much, Matt. Thank you very much, Matt. Thank Thanks, you guys. Okay. Yeah, good luck, guys.